Autopsy Postmortem Examination A surgical procedure done by a pathologist as a form of examination to determine cause of death, injury source, and the extent on the body, time since the death, establish an identity, retain relevant organs and or evidence if part of a criminal matter. Surprisingly, only a small portion of those that die undergo an autopsy. Most times, a medical examiner or coroner can determine the cause of death and time of death based on external injuries, evidence of the crime scene, and other scientific factors that do not call for extensive exams to be performed on the deceased. The amount of autopsies performed in the U.S. is on a steady decline, and it has been since the 1950s, but more technology available to us now than we once did. These advancements have allowed us to take in the surroundings in which a person died, coupled with swabs and labs to help us see what had happened to the deceased, making an autopsy unnecessary. But then you have cases like Amanda's, where she was found offered very little to the Emmy or coroner in a way of how she died. There could have been hypothermia. She was naked in the blistering winter of New York. It could have been a drug overdose. But let's be realistic. The only way she would end up in a trash can like this is if someone placed her there. Not entirely ruling out drug overdose, but making it questionable as a manner of death. There were no clothes to her. No obvious external wounds besides what looked like scrapes, bruises, and a possible nervous habit of picking at the skin. When Dr. Diane Verdes declared Amanda's manner of death, she had used her knowledge coupled with an autopsy that required the signature wide opening of the torso and looking at the internal structures of Amanda's body. What Dr. Verdes did different is she declared the manner of death either out of following an order or out of prejudice. Amanda was found in the inner east side of Buffalo, a known area for drug distribution and drug use. She had track marks from her time battling her heroin addiction. And she had a history of drug abuse and sex work that clouded the true manner of death. Amanda didn't accidentally ingest too much of a drug she was familiar with. She didn't couple it with another drug like speed and create a storm of chaos in her body known as speedballing. The toxicology screen came back six weeks after the manner of death had been declared, and it showed that Dr. Diane Verdes failed to do her job to the best of her ability, and in the end, she broke the oath that she vowed when she graduated from medical school. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley Tonight, we're going to pour over the six pages of Dr. Diane Verdi's medical report and break down the 78-page report of Dr. Sylvia Coparini. There are vast differences in these two reports, and you do not have to know what is in them to realize that. The difference in page numbers already tells you that these two did not come to the same conclusion. No matter your field of choice, following medical school, one thing remains the same for them all. You are not to permit considerations of age, disease or disability, creed, ethnic origin, gender, nationality, political affiliation, race, sexual orientation, social standing, or any other factor to intervene between her duty and her patient. Amanda was by all definition Dr. Verdi's patient. She has a duty to protect her patient and give her the same consideration she would have any other person who she examined, and for Amanda, she failed to do so. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, detail of autopsy, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode 
or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I hope all of you have had an awesome week. We have a little bit of housekeeping to get to before we get started tonight, and I just want to dive right into it. Don't forget to head over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and pick up your anniversary merch as we are celebrating one year since the start of TTCL. If you haven't yet, head over to Facebook and join the True Crime Librarian discussion group. Other nerds like yourself are discussing not only the cases covered on the show, but those making the headlines around the world. Go ahead and tell them that Ashley sent you. I want to remind you that you can still head over to treatedliketrash.com and make a donation or pick up a t-shirt. All the monies from those two are going to the expense of Exum and Amanda again, this time to dig a little deeper into some of those injuries Amanda had when her body was received at the Erie County Medical Examiner's Office. This could be evidence we need to have her manner of death change from accidental heroin overdose to homicide by strangulation. We have some true cried nerd love to spread tonight and first I want to start off with Alyssa DiCastrio. You may have come a nerd in one of the most untraditional ways, but I love your honesty and I appreciate it. Next, we have Tracy C. She's been listening in over on the YouTube channel and I'm glad to have you. Lauren C. has joined her and both of them are working their way through the TTCL lineup. So if you haven't been to the YouTube page, head over there make sure that not only do you listen to some of the stuff um, we've already covered, offer photographs and more of that through the YouTube channel, but I also did a exclusive summer mini-series over Zachary Davis, the Sledgehammer Killer, and you can find those videos under the playlist. Finally, I want to give a big shout out to Bethany Dennis. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm so happy to have you addicted with everyone else. Okay, enough housekeeping. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. Okay, so last week I introduced you all to Amanda Winkowski and her case, and for those of you that are tuning in now on episode two, I'll do a quick little recap. If you want more, you need to head back over and listen to episode one. Amanda was found naked headfirst in a rollerway trash can on the east side of Buffalo, New York, 34 days after she went missing. She went missing on December 5th of 2008, and she was not found until January 9th of 2009. She was frozen, and this could have been seen as a blessing to the ME and the pathologist for Erie County However, Amanda's body was grossly mishandled, and she was left to thaw overnight. This is not the correct procedure, as a rapid decomposition occurred while her inner organs remained frozen. In a brief six- to seven-page autopsy report signed by Dr. Verdes and three of her staff members, and for those of you that know something about true crime and those who cover the autopsy side, we don't typically see more than two people on an autopsy. Most times it is signed off by one medical examiner. However, in Amanda's case, there are four pathologists signing off. 
Amanda's cause of death was listed as an accidental heroin overdose. Generally here on TTCO, we do not discuss cases of accidents. But tonight, we're going to continue our talk on this, quote, accident. Let's start off with Amanda's toxicology report. And I promise I'm not going to be throwing out big words at you. Lord knows my grammar is not well enough to pronounce half of it. But the importance of this toxicology in Amanda's case is like the importance of the Declaration of Independence to the United States. This should reflect Dr. Verdi's findings, but it doesn't. Let's begin at the beginning and talk about heroin. Heroin is an opioid recreational drug used for its euphoric effects. The drug is typically ingested in, or injected into the bloodstream. We watch enough TV to know exactly how most people tend to use heroin, but you can also smoke it, snort it, or inhale it, which are all kind of new to me because I'm right there with you. Hollywood makes it so much worse just by sticking a needle in your arm. But it also comes with, if you're not using clean needles in your sharing, you run that risk of catching HIV, hepatitis, and so much more. Yet these users don't care. They are chasing the high. But it's not technically the high they're chasing. They're chasing the feeling they had on the very first high of heroin. And each time they ingest it, they need just a little bit more. Amanda was very familiar with this drug. She knew how much was enough. It wasn't, you know, when we talked about this, she'd only been clean a couple of days, maybe a week. In that time frame, she could not have lost that much resilient to the drug. So let's talk about how heroin breaks down into the body because it becomes a few major metabolites. But the one we are going to be looking at tonight is specifically 6-monoacetylmorphine, or 6-MAM for short. 6-MAM is present in the urine within minutes of ingesting heroin. Now, you're asking me, what do we care, right? Okay. When Amanda died, it seems like her body was dumped out into the cooler weather almost immediately after death. This caused the contents of Amanda to begin to freeze. As her body temperature slowly went down because there was nothing to regulate that heat, coupled with the cold, it was pretty quick that the contents of her bladder froze. And that left us with a pretty good picture of what Amanda did within the first the last 30, well, the last seven to eight days, give or take, in her life. So once she had thawed, and we're using air quotes here because she oh, didn't do it the right way. Anyways, we know Amanda struggled with addiction to heroin. So when she is calling this an accidental overdose, we expect to see that 6-monoacetylmorphine. However, when the contents of her urine were tested, nothing came back. So, is there any other way to really tell that the user had ingested heroin? Not really, because heroin is a synthetic opioid, but then you have morphine. Now, with morphine, you think, well, it's a derivative, right? heroin is a morphine. Morphine is an opioid, right? Okay. Well, when we're testing you and we want to see if you had ingested heroin because you've had a history of that, we will do a urine test because 6-MAM is so conclusive to the breakdown of heroin that nothing else generally tests positive under it. You're not going to get 6-MAM positive without the ingestion of heroin. You're not going to get it with the ingestion of morphine. Morphine comes back on a tox screen in its own little column. The only thing that is indicative to heroin is 6-MAM. And when you look at the tox screen of Amanda Winkowski performed by Dr. Verdes and her staff, 
she tests negative for six man. And I told you the almost the moment the user stops ingestion of heroin, withdrawal symptoms start to occur. Okay. Well, when a user ingests heroin, one of the first metabolites through the body is six man. That's why we can see it within the urine of a user within just a few minutes of use. So the night that she's at Antoine Garner's house and everybody says she's there and she, you know, oh my God, she put too much heroin in and she died. Wrong. Because we're not getting that. When Dr. Verdes listed Amanda's death as an accidental heroin overdose, she had ordered a tox screen not only on the urine, but on the blood and the bile. The blood and the bile, we're not going to see a indicative six-man uh, monoacetylmorphine in it. It is more likely to prove in the urine. So, but these tests are not providing us immediate results because it takes weeks for us to get a tox screen back when it's not like we need it ASAP. This is not an ASAP kind of thing. So we we can sit around. I mean, it's just going to show what I think it's going to show. She has truck marks, right? Well, when these results came back, Dr. Verdes had already declared the manner of death before looking at the results. So you can imagine her surprise when she looks down at the results and see 6-monoacetylmorphine is negative. There's no heroin in Amanda's system. Should have caused her to go back and amend her report, but she didn't. Instead, chief medical examiner, two deputy chief medical examiners, one of which was Verdi's herself, and the associate chief medical examiner all signed off on this report, backing up Dr. Verdi's and her findings. So one question, if they were presented with all of the same information, including the toxicology, before signing their name, saying the manner of death is an accidental overdose and only an accidental, do you think their names would be on that tox on that report? I find it hard that they were presented with all of that information. I feel like somebody said it's an accident and that's the only way it's going down and you, you, and you are going to sign it. This breaks the physician's pledge. We'll get into that a little bit further down. Um, Amanda did come back with a couple of positives in her system. She tested positive for morphine and codeine, which I said, when you break down heroin, never once do you get morphine. Morphine is produced in the body in small amounts, and it could be, it could be breakthrough as to, I I produce X amount of morphine. Therefore, my pain tolerance is only at a three. But you could, you know, produce like twice what I do. And now you're, the when you start to complain about pain, you're at six. So there's a difference and it could be linked with the production of morphine within the body. But what Amanda had in her system at that time is indicative that she had a prescription in which she did for some codeine and Tylenol. What I have kind of gathered as to why she was prescribed codeine with Tylenol is um, she had possibly an injury or an infection. We all have had like cellulitis. That that's pretty painful if you've ever had that. That or uh, what uh, what other people call it like a boil. So same concept. It's kind of painful, very tender, or it could have been something else. So. She pops positive on the talk screen. They call the physician and yes, I, I gave her this medication on this date and told her to take it in this manner. Well, both the morphine and codeine are within therapeutic ranges, which means she was not abusing the prescription, which she could because in it's, it's all there in the opioids. It, it could still connect to the same receptors within the body. However, heroin is, um, it's so much pure as an opioid that it takes 
three to six times the concentrate of codeine to get to the, the effects of just a little bump of heroin. So she wasn't abusing this medication. She was taking it as she was supposed to because they are within therapeutic ranges. She also tested for cannabinoids. She was positive for smoking pot. Now, this doesn't mean she did it like right before she went to Antoine's. It just means in five days prior to her death, she had smoked some pot. And I've seen at digging for answers in this case, some people who are, are battling the addiction of opioids or going through that withdrawal symptoms, they tend to turn to pot. It helps them kind of ward off those ugly flu-like symptoms they don't want to experience. And if the longer you can ward off those symptoms, by the time you're done, you could detox completely using pot, right? It's still going to give you a euphoric effect. And for some people, they claim it is more powerful as a pain reliever than an opioid. But it also keeps at bay those nasty symptoms you don't want to happen, which is why 98% of the people using heroin continue to use is because there's no other alternative for them to keep those symptoms from happening. So they might as well keep putting it in their system. So her smoking a little bit of pot, nothing, right? Well, then she also tested positive for something really shocking on my side because I wasn't really sh When I saw it, I knew what I was seeing. And I was like, well, that doesn't look good for Antoine, right? So what I'm talking about is gamma hydrobutyrate. It's also known as GHB. And for those of you really familiar with true crime, you can go back to Max Factor heir Andrew Lester. This was his favorite drug of choice when he was going to rape a female that he had brought back to his hotel rooms. But again, which this is going to shock the crap out of you because it shocks the crap out of me. GHB is another thing your body naturally produces. So when we were looking at a breakdown, and you can go see this over at treatedlikeTrash.com, you can see a breakdown of that toxicology report by a person who is very well established, capable, and I couldn't, I don't think we could find anybody more capable of breaking that down and explaining it to us in layman terms. GHB being in her system was slightly higher than a normal human produces. However, in the time after immediate death, the body is still holding on to some of this stuff. And one of the things is GHB. So when they were looking at it, we were like, uh, this is not good. But we had been building some GHB. And when we died, that's you'll see this slight build in post-mortem production. We see it with alcohol too. A lot of people who are dead and have been dead for, for some time, a couple hours, there are trace amounts of ethanol in their system, and that's the body decomposing. Typically, if it is, if the, the deceased did actually consume a drink, if they were coming in at a post-mortem production, we could say, or if it's not that, then they had the equivalent to one drink, which would not cause any inhibition in the victim at all. So, I mean, you could go either way. It really could be post-mortem buildup, or it could be they ingested a little bit of alcohol, but it wasn't enough to change the, the outcome. It hadn't been enough to cloudy them. Other than what we've talked about above, everything else, it came back negative. Which, for this being an accidental overdose, seems unlikely that the combination above would be lethal, even if you try and switch it from heroin to any one of the other things listed positive. None of them alone or together put Amanda at risk of death. None. Now, let's get on to the autopsy of Dr. Verdes. This is a very short autopsy. It will only take us a few minutes to kind of talk it over. And 
now when reading this, it seems like kind of the run of the mill wording of an autopsy. And maybe at points she forgot to alter the text because some of it does not technically make sense. But we're going to go ahead and start where she started, and that's the external examination. Amanda presented well-nourished and without clothing. The jewelry that she still had on were, was cataloged. Her hair was described. And here's something I found interesting and, and kind of misquoting. Some say something about Amanda getting her hair cut off, similar to a calling card. And there was more talk of her tongue being cut out because Amanda had, was known to be um, an informant to the police department. So there's a lot of misconception there. Her hair was not cut. It was broke in pieces because it was frozen. And there was some injury to the tongue, but it was not a removal of her tongue. Just to clarify. Her eyes were noted as brown. The conjunctiva shows us pink decompositional discoloration. But what should be noted here is that there is no mention nor is there any present petechial hemorrhages within the whites of her eyes. Which we see typically in manual strangulation when we go back and look at Shanann Watts and her autopsy. She had these busted blood vessels in the whites of her eyes and in the conjunctiva where the pressure had built up and those con those little bitty vessels it doesn't take a whole lot to rupture one and that causes that red freckly look to a person's either their eyes or to their skin or whatever we're not seeing that within amanda however i have a theory as to Due to the position of her body, that could have helped mask or sped up the decompositional state of her um, conjunctiva and the whites of her eyes. But I'm not trained and, you know, I don't even have a doctorate off of a cereal box. So who am I to say any of that? Next up, we have the neck. This is one of the central points in both the autopsies. And this is important to show either she really did have an overdose or she really didn't and she died of strangulation. The neck is where we're going to see some of those injuries. It's, it's just, there's going to be so much more for the neck to tell. As a matter of fact, she stated this about her neck, quote, the trachea's midline and there are no injuries to the neck. Remember that because this is all that she says. There's no documentation of referral to a photograph or to a exhibit later on in the, there's, there's no exhibits in Dr. Verdi's report. We'll find this a little hard to believe as there are lengthy notes on Amanda's neck in Dr. Coparini's report. But to continue on with Dr. Verdi's, she also said that facial injuries are described elsewhere and tongue injuries are described elsewhere. Now we do find the facial injuries described later on in just like a quarter of a page of what happened. But as far as the tongue being described as saying elsewhere, we expect to see that in the exam and we do not. There's nothing in the report that further describes the tongue or the injuries. No reported fractures were reported in her upper extremities. Injuries are described elsewhere, but I'm going to go over them with you right now. Uh, she had a purple one and a half inch by half inch contusion on her dorsal right forearm. She had a purple half inch by half inch contusion on the dorsal right forearm. And she had a red brown one inch by half inch contusion on the dorsal right forearm at the wrist. The way these are splayed out is almost as if somebody grabbed her and it's those top four fingers with some being underneath. And the position of them is quite wide. 
she goes on to note two crested lesions, possible scratches, punctures, or track marks measuring one-eighth inch by one-quarter inch on her dorsal right hand. This is one of those injuries I kind of might have chalked up to being a skin picker, and that's just one of the things that happens when you use drugs, especially those you use intravenously. She had a punctate one-eighth inch red abrasion on her dorsal left hand. She had a red quarter by half inch contusion on the dorsal left thigh at her knee. She had a red three-quarter inch abrasion on the ventrolateral left leg, and she had needle track marks noted in the right antecubital fossa and left antecubital fossa, which is basically saying inside of her elbow. I know I said I wouldn't say some of these bigger words, um, but there's no other way to really describe them. When we're talking dorsal, we're talking about behind. When we are talking anterior, we're talking in front. So those marks that we were talking about on Amanda's forearms are on the underside, which is the paler side where hair typically does not grow of your arm. That's where these, these bruises are lining up. And the injury is the underside of her right hand. So it's really hard to break this down in layman's because I could go extreme and talk to you like you're dumb and I know you're not or I can read it to you as I see it and then it, if I feel like there's clarification I will clarify but for now I'm going to kind of go with her wording because um, once you figure out dorsal and anterior you pretty much got it so now, the short internal exam that started with the traditional Y incision is listed next. Nothing is noted upon the opening of the body except the consistency of the fat and the muscle and the coldness of her organs due to the frozen state of her body. Basically, now basically, she hit the top of her head and this caused what we rarely see in adults unless it's a pretty bad injury to the scalp. And it's a subglial hematoma. And we see this more in children than we do in adults. But this for certain shows Amanda was hit with something pretty hard or she hit her head pretty hard during her time inside of Antoine's home. This doesn't necessarily create certain chain of events for us, but we're kind of starting to get... A visual of what happened. It is possible that she was hit with something or she had been caught like something caused her to fall and hit her head and this was uh, maybe a way to help subdue her so that Antoine could rape her. The scalp also showed unusual scattered reflective petechiae. This is also a result of trauma to the head so just that one injury could have caused both of these notations. Still not what we want, but helpful to prove there's injury to Amanda and this is possibly showing the violence of the manner in which she was attacked. When we go down, we get into the neck area and, and Dr. Verdi said this, quote, examination of the soft tissues, cartilaginous, bony structures of the neck, including a complete anterior and posterior neck dissection demonstrates no abnormalities with the usual anatomic relationship preserved. There are no intermuscular hemorrhages or fractures of the hyoid bone or laryngeal cartilages demonstrated, end quote. So that's basically what she had to say about the neck. Not too much more. We'll go over it here in just a second, but that's it. I'm going to tell you when you're going through Dr. Coberini's, I think you're page and a half on the description of the injuries to Amanda's neck, but also referencing photographs to show you that. Dr. Verdes moves to the back to the neck and its internal structure saying that the larynx and trachea, they show no abnormalities and are continuous in the usual manner of primary bronchial, which is what 
goes in. That's that first entrance into the lungs. This also includes the thyroid. Thyroid. But here's something I found quite interesting while researching strangulation. Even though it doesn't show anatomical features changing and evidence of natural disease, there is a way to see it is injured. But Dr. Verdes does not put any of that into her report. She says, including the thyroid, they all show usual anatomic features without evidence of natural disease or injury, but not necessarily true. Everything else she listed was either within the normal wear and tear of the body or listed as unremarkable, which basically means pretty good condition. So here is what happens once the autopsy is done and over with. A list of materials is released into police custody. Those are noted within the report, along with the organs being replaced into a biohazard bag and into the torso before they suture the cavity closed. But also with the listing of materials are things retained by the body. So what went into that plastic bag? It was what's listed. But when you go through and you look at Amanda's, she didn't retain any organ, tissue, or muscle portion to her throat. That was all kept at Erie Medical Examination Offices. We know this because once Amanda was opened again up in LA two years later, they were not there for the examination of Dr. Coparini. Leslie ended up having to go and file a lawsuit in order to allow Dr. Coparini to view the organs of Amanda's neck. But due to the, sp the specifics of the lawsuit, she was granted the access to it, but she only could go to Buffalo and view it in the Erie County Medical Examiner's office. So she flew out to Buffalo. She reviewed them under the watchful eye of Dr. Verdes and the entire Erie County medical staff. So this, in a nutshell, is Dr. Verdi's report. There's not much to it, and what was reported seemed to have seemed to not have any significance to backing up her claim of an overdose or a claim of strangulation. But as you can guess, there's a lot left out, according to Dr. Coparini. Dr. Coparini, she, caught, she listed the cause of death as manual strangulation associated with blunt force injuries of face, tongue, external genitalia, upper and lower extremities, followed by improper disposal of a human being, along with deliberate indifference, homicide. Manual strangulation with significant neck compression deep to the major right and left neck vessels is a low-velocity, high-amplitude, localized force that when applied to Amanda Winkowski's non-ossified thyroid articulation deep to the carotid artery, carotid artery and jugular veins led to unconsciousness in a matter of seconds and was lethal in a matter of a few minutes. This is from the forensic summary that I read in the beginning of episode one. If you haven't listened, you may want to go ahead and go back to the beginning in order to really understand why I'm dissecting down two autopsies here tonight. Now, Dr. Coparini, she starts off with external injuries, and that includes contusions of the neck, facial injuries, bite marks of the tongue, which we know that Dr. Verdi said the tongue would be described elsewhere, but never really was covered. Micro hemorrhages of the strap and extrinsic extrinsic laryngeal muscles, carotid and jugular veins, sheath focal hemorrhaging, micro hemorrhages in the musculotendinous attachments, insertion of extrinsic laryngeal muscles, and a hairline fracture or dislocation of the left thyroid corn or horn found at the second autopsies are consistent with the attempts and or attempts to restrain and subdue the deceased. Then she references 81 photographs 
to prove that her manner of death fit due to what she found on and in Amanda's body. This does not include the additional 12 exhibits that she references. Why am I pointing this out? Well, Dr. Verdi was interviewed following Dr. Coparini's release of her report and Channel 4 in Buffalo, I believe, interviewed her and she literally said that Dr. Comparini does not refer to any photographs to prove her findings. I may not have seen every single one of the photos that she referenced to, but Gavin has. And he assures me that they are all pointing to manual strangulation on top of the physical abuse that pulled energy from her in a rapid way, leading to why it was even more fatal with the attack. Was she strangled? Dr. Virtus says no. What you look for in manual strangulation then are all of these muscles inside your neck. We reflect one, each one individually, and we're looking for bruises in those muscles. And those bruises weren't there. When the outside pathologist's findings were revealed at a press conference, the attorney showed me pictures that were claimed to display the effects of strangulation and struggle, but they weren't persuasive. She points to no picture to show that, although I don't know how she could, and there's no evidence in any photomicrograph or anything that she provided that could show me what she's talking about. But there was a high level of drugs in the body. Does this meet the standard? Is this enough for a person to have died from? Yes, it is. Dr. Virtus and her colleagues maintain their original diagnosis was correct. Even better, Dr. Comarini makes notes of the amount of medical examiners that signed underneath Dr. Diane Verdi's. She herself found this surprising, but raised the question, is it known or unknown if pathology staff members had personal knowledge of all facts and findings? Police and law enforcement investigation and scene investigation when the consensus opinion was issued. Only opinions based on personal knowledge is appropriate. Coparini notes that travel, the travel process of Amanda within the casket and the unsealing of her coffin. The head is noted and it notice this. There's no petechial hemorrhages in the eyelids, face, or mucosa of the mouth. But there was congestion of the eyes due to the position of the body in which she was found. We talked about particular hemorrhages that are generally seen with manual strangulations and we're not seeing them on Amanda. But that also doesn't mean that she did not die by the hands of somebody else. There's also external blunt force injuries to her neck and face and these are noted. The neck organs along with the tongue included were removed from the biohazard bag by the first prosector, Dr. Verdes, who submitted buccal swabs to the Buffalo P Police Department. Results were unknown at the time of the undersigned. What she's saying basically is she's not aware of a why they kept the neck muscles and organs and to whatever came of the buccal swabs that she did. Like I said before, Coparini had to fly out to Buffalo in order to examine these organs after the court order was issued that she was allowed to view them, but under special circumstance. She was not allowed to bring any of her staff with her under the orders of the Buffalo court system. So Dr. Coparini was tagging, photographing, and writing descriptions of what she was seeing all by herself. This made the process much more lengthy than it would have if she would have had some of her staff being able to catalog these things as she was noting them. Now, let's talk about the external blunt force injuries of Amanda's face. Her mandible, the distal anterior border of the mandible, there's three varying in size oval-shaped purple brew, abrasion scrapes, contusions, bruise, whatever you want to call them. The inferior wound, the one that's further away, it measured a quarter inch by an eighth inch and by a, or half inch. 
located in the lower aspect of the right cheek. Okay. So go ahead and kind of think about where that is. Right. Girls, where you lay your contour, go down below. Men, it's going to be just above that jawbone. You feel the bone go just above it. That's where this is located. Now, on the chin, slightly to the right of the midline of the chin is a blue half inch by three quarter inch oval shaped contusion or abrasion that shows skin slippage. And this is common. For one, she's been gone for two years. For two, the embalming isn't necessarily uh, going to prevent that from happening. It's just the process and of life. So this is not something that we can avoid. However, it does not change the fact that the injury was there. And then with Dr. Verdi's, she glossed over it without any second glance. Now, uh, there's another one on the right angle of the jaw. Two purple, blue colored bruises, contusions are identified above the and below the angle of the jaw. And I believe these are kind of the injuries that Gavin and his team are looking at. These ones that are on her cheeks and on her jaw because there's a good chance when, when Gavin was looking at the photographs, it hit him that this could possibly be uh, a burn mark, okay? Just the way it kind of looked. Well, then they got the idea to kind of see, you know, the distance between them. And it almost looks like a taser gun. So if Amanda had been hit by a taser, this could prove that there was that just goes more to show that she needed to be subdued and this was not, you know, a drug overdose. So that is why they're currently raising money for another examination because what they can do is Dr. Kenneth Clark, he was on Gavin's Treated Like Trash um, a couple weeks ago and he kind of talked about what they're going to be looking at in the skin and there's a difference in the cells that change when they're hit with high velocity voltage and it changes their characteristics. So a simple view under the microscope for several, I guess you'd call them biopsies, but just skin samples taken from that area could show us whether or not it was hit with high velocity electricity or if it's a different kind of injury. She goes on to continue to list several more injuries. Most of them are red, purple, blue, dark brown, contusions, bruises. That are, none of them really go up over an inch and a half, but they're all in the vicinity of she could have took a punch, she could have took a slap. When she fell and hit her head, she could have scraped her face. These are injuries that um, were not really predominant or we really looked at either, either medical examiners were not overly concerned. However, Dr. Coparini is very descriptive in these, in, in these wounds, telling us whether they're crested with a scab or are they a bruise or a hemorrhage or whatever. She's listing this for us, but I mean, at the very least, it's a picking problem at your skin. At the most, it's wounds showing that Amanda went through some violence. Now, examination of the external blunt force injuries to the anterior midline of the neck. This shows a series of red, purple, brown bruises consisting of three varying in size oval shaped contusions spread transversely in the middle of the neck. So it almost is like, okay, so take three of your fingers and kind of put them off find your Adam's apple and kind of go off to either side. That's kind of what they look like are bruise wounds from the tips of a fingertip just bearing down in that section. And this is also in the vicinity of that thyroid notch or the Adam's apple where we saw that hairline fracture in the thyroid cornu horn that I keep referencing in Dr. Coparini's manner of death. 
and the reason I, I'm trying to bring attention to that is because there's very little trauma that can be done to replicate that. And generally, it is done with an up-close and personal kill. We don't see, sometimes you don't see a fracture in the hyoid bone, which if any of you know where that is, it's located and, you know, go to the top of your neck where your chin starts to go and the underneath part, it's back in there. And we typically see a fracture of that when we're looking at strangulation, but that is more of like a lynching or suicide by hanging that we see that. And very rarely do you see a fracture in that area under the age of 25 because it's still what we call green. If you ever take a live branch and you try to break it, it's green and it just kind of splinters apart instead of snapping. That's what a green fracture is kind of like. So in Amanda, we're seeing it on the attachment of her thyroid instead of on that hyoid bone in the back. But both of those... Typically, the only way you're going to see injury there is through manual strangulation. As you can tell, because I did not read any of that to you from Dr. Verdi's because it was not listed with Dr. Verdi's report. Comparini did make a note regarding the Erie County Medical Examiner's Office photograph, which they took a photograph. And she states the large contusion situated to the left of the midline of the neck may be clearly delineated and it's in the same location where the bruising was identified in the exam exhumation postmortem process. So what, what she's saying is what she's looking at was there when, when Dr. Verdes did the autopsy, but yet she did not make note of them. At the center, slightly to the right side, is an oval-shaped 7 eighths inch in the greatest dimension. It's red, purple, brown, contusion, bruise, whatever you want to call it. So basically, it's almost like a thumb or... I don't know, maybe the thumb of the opposite hands if he's using two hands. There, it's, It lines up with pressure that you would give at the tip of your finger. So the bruising on her neck should have been enough to warrant Dr. Coparini to really kind of take a look at the internal and external structures. Yet she glosses over these. Now, why she does, we'll never know. She's not going to say. But all these bruises, these contusions, show focal hemorrhaging into the deepest part of the skin. So what? it's not just a capillary at the very surface of the skin that is busted and causing these bruises. Kind of like, um, oh, you've seen them. Kind of like a little blood blister. That's not what she's looking at. What she's looking at is something that goes far deeper into the skin layers busting something underneath causing these bruises, which means there is significant pressure to get to that point. Other patterned um, red pressure marks are found on the neck, but this is due to compression resulting from a necklace, and it was a latent cross, and it was on Amanda during the time of her burial. Internal blunt force injuries of the anterior midline of the neck. So we're going inside. And this is, if you have any questions regarding any of the medical, please do not hesitate to get with me on Facebook, through the discussion page, somewhere. And I can kind of explain these if I'm not being layman enough. But here's where Dr. Coparini is going to kind of tell us what's going on on the inside. And this is from her time in Buffalo examining the structures. So she has deep structures of the neck. They do reveal focal areas of hemorrhage. There's a neck muscle and it is exposed. And underneath, we're looking at focal hemorrhage areas and into the left bundle of that strap muscle in the neck. Now, on the right side of the neck, the contusions and bruising in the skin below the right angle of the jaw. And, of course, their focal hemorrhaging 
and it's deep into the muscle structure. The left common carotid artery was dissected by Dr. Coparini, a focal area of hemolytic staining in the endothelial lining, which is a way for them to kind of look to see if there was injury to that area under a microscope. It's being found because that's part of the procedure. This location coincides with the structures in the left side of the neck at the same level where the hemorrhages are present. And again, you had to look at the hemorrhage before you looked at the staining of the vessel and she just did not make note. So with the extrinsic strap and intrinsic muscle of the larynx in the outermost wall of the left common carotid artery, jugular vein, and bite marks in the tongue, and then we have severe congestion of the thyroid gland. All of this, all of it, points to strangulation. We don't see thyroid congestion in that organ unless you have a thyroid-related autoimmune or if there was intense pressure put on the organ. Now, the thyroid is highly important to the body, but you can also live without it. You just have to kind of replace the hormones it puts out. When it becomes congested, it doesn't take long for the body and its organs to start to fail. And so with the amount of pressure that Amanda saw, this is why it did not take her long to pass. Dr. Coparini, she goes ahead and lists the injuries that were found on the tongue. There were bilateral large lacerations of the borders consistent with bite marks present. The frontal right lateral hemorrhage contusion bite mark is at three-eighths of an inch in its greatest dimension. In the laterals left anterior mid portion of the tongue is another three-eighth inch in greatest dimension bite mark. She bit hard, struggling against her attacker. And we see this often with strangulation. Going back to the Chris Watts case, if you look at little Bella's autopsy, she had several bite marks on her tongue due to her father strangling her. We are going to get into the blunt force injuries of the external genitalia. I'm going to throw out another warning here because this portion may be hard to listen to. And I want to say that if you feel like any of this that I could be talking about in the next three to five minutes is going to be too much, you may want to skip ahead. Moderate to severe abrasion scraping of the epithelial surface of the labia majora, labia minora, clitoral hood, clitoris, vulva. All of these are the external and the external opening of the urethra and the vaginal canal. It's all present and we are seeing some trauma to that area. Examination of the skin just below the vaginal opening not located within the labia minora reveals a zigzag 5 16th inch laceration, hemorrhage, and tear of that thin non-fibrotic epithelial surface. So for those of you that have had a baby and you had a tear during the delivery, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a tear in that area. And it's a very thin skin in that area. It's not made to withstand large amounts of trauma. So when we're seeing damage to that area, it's likely either due to birth or rape, which there's no doubt in my mind that Amanda's time during Antoine's home, she, she was raped. None of this is listed in Dr. Verdi's autopsy. Nothing regarding the genitalia. As a matter of fact, I think she listed as unremarkable, which means great condition. However, when Dr. Coparini is going over the photographs sent over from the Erie Medical Examiner's office, she notes that when Dr. Verdi's was looking at this area, she did not separate the labia majora wide enough in order to see that injury. Had she gone just a slight bit wider, she would have been able to denote that 
And, and that, I mean, like I said, you don't, women don't typically tear that on their own. Um, it's, that comes from the woman not being ready in order to have sex. And without that, you get tears in that area. So this is why I said, this is why I gave out that warning, because I know that's traumatic to hear. As a woman, you don't want to hear about another woman being attacked. But in this case, this just goes even further to prove that Amanda didn't die of a drug overdose. Now, I'm not going to continue on with Dr. Coparini's autopsy. And the reason being is the things I've listed above are the things that contradicted Dr. Verdi's in her report. Dr. Coparini's version of the report is on treatedliketrash.com. You're more than welcome to go look at it. She does a, a very thorough examination. So Leslie found herself a good medical examiner for this second exam. Unfortunately, Dr. Coparini is no longer with us. Therefore, she cannot re rebute things that Erie County is coming out with and trying to tear down her exam. For another reason as to why they are looking to raise some money in order to have a third examination done, we need to be able to rebute back and say, no, this, this didn't happen post-mortem. This was there. You did not take the time to either look at it or didn't note it. Here's another little side note. Um, I talked with somebody who's gone through actually the school to learn how to embalm someone. And the bruises and contusions and all of that that we saw on Amanda's body with her arms and her legs and, and her face and her genitalia, none of that would have become more present or would not have been seen by the original medical examiner. Once you embalm the body, bruising, contusions, and hemorrhages stop happening. There's no blood. They're, they're draining you and pumping you full of this god-awful stuff in order to preserve you as long as possible. Um, it also helps stop the decaying process. So it's not like they weren't there and then became more prominent over time. Once the death occurred, what was on the body was what we were going to get to see unless there was deterioration occurring, which because she was frozen, uh, there wasn't any until the thawing process occurred and that was rapid decomposition and of the external of Amanda, but it did not destroy the evidence showing she was strangled. It did not destroy the evidence that she had been raped and it did not destroy the evidence to show that she did not die of a heroin overdose. For whatever reason, that of Verdi's listed, the manner of death as an acute opioid overdose, we may never know. Sometimes it is who you know that can get you out of anything. For a while, I thought that maybe there was something that Adam was going to get out of bringing Amanda to Antoine's that night. But I was informed that Adam and Antoine never crossed paths before or after December 5th, 2008. After hearing Celeste's story, it was so eerily similar that I thought he had found a way to settle debt and have the woman to victimize. But I was not looking at this picture in the right way. 
maybe it had nothing to do with Amanda being delivered to him to be victimized. It could be that there was someone there that night that was a part of the right people and them being entangled into this mix would have been harmful to their family or friends. The DNA found on Amanda was that of Adam Patterson in the form of semen in her mouth along with two other people's. We know that that had to have occurred within the last hour prior to her death. Antoine Garner's DNA was found in the form of a hair on her butt when she was brought in. We know Antoine Garner likes to attack from behind, along with five other people, some of which we could not completely identify as we had impartial DNA evidence. Amanda's body was riddled with pieces of evidence after pieces of evidence. This whole story is crushing, no matter what angle we look at it at. Amanda had so much more life to give than to walk in to make a buy, sealing her fate. What we really need to change is how Amanda's story ends. Those who tried to hide her under the rug and hope her entire death went unnoticed are the ones who should pay for everything that they have put Amanda's family through. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we take a closer look at what Amanda's body was telling us. Join me next week as we wrap up this horrendous case and fingers crossed it's not the end of Amanda's story. As always, I leave you with one last line. I will not use my medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties, even under threat. The Physician's Pledge. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>